choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Titus. Titus, if today you see me very animated with my arms like this, it's, it's not because I'm trying something new. I floated with the students yesterday and I can't pick them up any higher. <clears throat> so uh, just so you're aware of that. Uh, there was an article recently in the Washington Post entitled, Can Hipster Christianity Save Churches from Decline? And I want to read a little bit about this article to you. The article states that in a recent opinion piece in the Washington Post, it was written by a 20-something who considers the trend of uh, recent years of cool Christianity, and he just simply asked, can it be sustained and can it engage millennials? It's kind of the question that church leaders are pondering of the day. And he begins with two questions. The first one is, do people want Christianity to be cool? And the second question is, what happens when churches become too driven by the desire to be trend-savvy and culturally relevant? And he offers two brief responses immediately. He says this, that most evidence suggests the answer is no to these questions. And secondly, that research indicates that millennials do prefer real church over cool ones. And then he points to recent illustrations of pastors who were kind of known as the rock star megachurch uber hipsters. And, and, and he says of them, if you look at them now, they're not even in ministry anymore. And then he cites a one, uh, which if I called it, many of you would be familiar with. And he says, maybe this one is the best example. And they're filling a lot of the newspapers even right now about their stances on certain issues in the world and how they approach them. But as he points to these illustrations, uh, he he simply says this about his own 20-something opinion. He says that Christianity's true relevance lies not in the gospel's comfortable trendiness, but in its uncomfortable transcendence as a truth with the power to rebuff, renew, and restore wayward humanity as every epoch in history. He goes on to write, if we are interested in Christianity in any sort of serious way, it's not because it's easy or trendy or uh, popular. He wrote this in an earlier article. And then he goes on to say it's because Jesus himself is appealing. And what he says rings true. It's because the world that we inhabit is utterly phony, ephemeral, narcissistic, image-obsessed, and sex-drenched, and we want an alternative. It's not because we want more of the same. Further time will tell whether the legacy of the hipster Christianity phenomenon will be one of decline or revival for churches. 
He goes on to write, it could be that in certain parts of the world, and particularly in larger cities, cool churches are exactly what is needed to inject life into stagnant tradition. But my guess is that sooner rather than later, he writes, it will become clear that what people want from church is something different than what is offered on the pages of Vogue or on the streets of Brooklyn. Many don't want the church to be like a scene bar or a stylish boutique. They want the church to be the church, an institution that embraces awkward people, that confronts sin, that transforms lives, that subverts the sovereignty of self, that serves others and provides meaning more substantial than the ephemera of fickle fads. I just happen to agree with him, though I'm not still 20-something. I want to pose two questions to us this morning. What kind of church is the true church of this age? What kind of church is the true church of this age? And what kind of people are part of this church? These two questions I want to address over the next several weeks in a series entitled The Church, a study of the book of Titus. And I want us to consider leadership, discipleship, and mission as Titus lays them out for us. You see, Titus is short in length, but it is dense with essential instruction for the church. And I think in our day and time, we, we need this, friends. We need this. We live in a region of the world that enjoys some of the greatest factors that give us an off-the-chart kind of quality of life. Not only Springfield, which is kind of the center of southwest Missouri in many respects, but also the surrounding area. But let me just refresh our memories on how great that our region has been qualified over the last 15 years. In 2000, uh, uh, Springfield was awarded Sports Illustrated's most sports-minded city in all of Missouri. At that time, we didn't have a professional team like we have now, the Springfield Cardinals. It was just based off of the sheer amount of sports that took place here, many through the tournaments and the things that bring people in to that. And so without any competitive team, we beat out Kansas City and St. Louis. That's significant, friends. And I don't want you to hear me saying I'm against sports. Sports has a great opportunity to enrich our lives. But like any good thing, it also has the potential to become God. And for many, it is in our area. Education is strong in southwest Missouri. With over 11 institutions of higher education. And many of them winning high accolades and achievements. Education is prominent here. And highly prized. You buy a house... In many of the realms, or many of the neighbor, or excuse me, communities around Springfield, one of the greatest selling factors is the schools. It's the schools. I'm all for education. I've got more than I should, probably. And it still hasn't helped me enough. But, you know, I'll overcome it, hopefully, and get on with life. What about health care? Health care is our leading employer in the region. In a city the size of Springfield, roughly 160,000 people in Springfield proper, we, we enjoy two of the top nationally ranked health care institutions in the nation. That's really pretty nuts if you just think about it. 
at the, the size of our city in comparison to cities across the nation and the influence that we have because of those. Two top-ranked nationally healthcare systems. And yet, friends, and yet, we still have many issues and troubles that we are trying to address. I'm all for health care. I'm all for health care. But again, I'm not for taking things that are good and making them God. I mean, Ponce de Leon has nothing, right, on Springfield in that search for the fountain of youth that we're all looking for. What about tourism? Springfield holds the number one tourist attraction in the whole state, the region of southwest Missouri. I mean, you can't just drive anywhere to laugh your yawk off, right? There you go. See, I'm, I cut five minutes off the sermon right there. I mean, we enjoy a quality of life that many people envy. And because of the tourism in our area, we enjoy many things about just normal everyday life that, that other people don't enjoy just because of where we live. Finally, I'll give you one, one last one. Religion. Religion holds a strong influence. Springfield ranks as number six on the most biblically-minded cities in the United States. Southwest Missourians are a religious people. A deeply religious people. You see, Springfield represents all well, Southwest Missouri's highest quality of life ranking, which represents the overall goodness of our culture. And with a such a high quality of life, one might be tempted to think, what more could we want? And yet the fundamental questions of life have yet to be answered by the culture at large. Ultimate satisfaction in life still looms unresolved. Contentment is still just out of so many people's reach. Joy is absent. Peace isn't even a prayer. And death still remains. We've just not answered all the questions that life puts in front of us. In the last 16 years, the years that I've lived in southwest Missouri, there's been a drastic culture shift. And, and if you look at it, you, I believe, it feels like, if not true, that, that not in just the last 16 years has our culture shifted, but in the last 10, yeah, even the last 5 years. And it feels like that the more it changes, the faster that change comes about. The rate of which that change occurs seems to increase daily. And as our culture speeds with an increasing rate of change towards godlessness... And people are dying to be set free from the fundamental problems of life that we all share. The one question that, must re that we as a church must remain focused on is, what does it take to live godliness in an age of godlessness? What does it take? Allow me to provide some context, if you will, for where we're headed in Titus. The book of Titus is set against the backdrop of Crete. 
Crete was the fourth largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's mentioned a couple of times in Scripture. Uh, Cretans were actually present at Pentecost uh, in Acts chapter 2 on that day. But it's also mentioned later uh, as Paul is traveling back to Rome after his three missionary journeys. He's appealed to Caesar for his imprisonment. And he's traveled, traveling back to Rome because a great storm in that time of year blows up. They come across from where he leaves and they have to dip under Crete in order to protect themselves from the wind. Paul says, we should harbor here for the winter. We're not going to make it. And instead of listening to him, the sailors go, no, we will. They take off, and within a couple of days, they have a shipwreck. So they should have listened to Paul to begin with. And so Crete has at least some prominence in its presence in the New Testament. But it's known for two things. Are you ready? Immoral people and a godless culture. Let me give you two quotes from their own people. These are quotes from people who were Cretans themselves. Epimenides, a Cretan poet, called Cretans liars, cruel animals, and lazy guttons. Paul quotes him in, in Titus uh, 1.12, a little later in the book. And the whole phrase, to act the Cretan, literally became an idiom, meaning to play the liar. You just couldn't trust Cretans. They were immoral people in every expression, and they lived in a culture that was absolutely godless. But the gospel must have made quite a difference there because today the name of Titus is honored in many villages, churches, and monasteries. And so we know that this letter that was canonized in the Holy Scriptures, that we know the place in which it was implemented and applied, shows some evidence that the gospel made an impact among an immoral people and a godless culture. Now let me talk a little bit about the man that, that Paul wrote to. His name was Titus. Paul wrote the whole letter so he could encourage this younger uh, uh, minister of the gospel. And, and he's first mentioned in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul takes his entourage back to Jerusalem and they have what is called the Jerusalem Council where basically they were debating on what salvation is all about. This is where we really see doctrinal debate begin to enter into scriptural uh, history, if you will. And some were saying, if you're going to be a Christian, or what we know as Christians today, you must be a Jew and be circumcised. And Peter who had explicitly seen a vision from God to know this was not true, and Paul begin to come, and Paul predominantly represents the position that circumcision does not make one a Christian. Salvation that comes only from God makes one a Christian. And Titus was his example. Titus was a Greek. He had obviously not been circumcised. I say obviously because that's where the text leads us. And yet, he was doing the work of gospel ministry. And so he is saying to us, 
in arguing in this presence that Titus experienced many things that grew him up quickly. And as a, a young minister, Paul then would take him as a representative and then often send him out, even as he did Timothy, which is probably his right and left hand of ministry representation as we see it in the New Testament. And he sends Timothy to Ephesus and he sends Titus to Crete. And what he says to Titus is, go and act in my behalf and Carry out the things among the people who have been saved there and organize them. Put into place what remains is how he says it. And so Titus goes to the island of Crete as a representative of Paul's apostolic ministry. And that's where we pick up in chapter 1. I want to read the first four verses for us this morning. With this understanding in mind, Paul writes... Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Paul begins this way. This is just the introductory letter. It's a a typical introductory, though it's more uh, extended and expanded upon than most of his introductions in his New Testament letters. But he begins this way. He's a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to serve God's elect. A servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to serve God's elect. You see, God from all eternity past ordained salvation and then he called and sent his servants to preach the gospel so people could be saved. This is the will and the plan of God. This gives to us, it helps us understand what gospel mission is all about. You preach Jesus Christ's life and teaching on the earth, his finished work and death on the cross, his empty tomb in raising to life, and his ascension to where he sits today at the right hand of the Father, and he rules and he reigns in his kingdom, which is now active. You see, the church, Christians serve God's eternal kingdom purpose in the world when the gospel is the only power that is preached, that is shared, and that is served in the church. Let me hit a pause button and speak a little personally to us as a local church. Life point, as you've often heard me say, we have an agenda. And we should never try to hide the fact that we have an agenda. And here is our agenda. Our message is our mission. Our message is not what we take on our mission, but our message determines our mission. 
in every way and to every extent. LifePoint exists to lead people to be real Christ followers in life together. That's our mantra. That's our missional tag. That's our rallying cry. But only the gospel can accomplish our commission. Only the gospel can make a person a Christian. And only the gospel can make a Christian godly. For godliness demands the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have also heard me often say that the strongest witness and the most effective missional practice is simply godliness in one's personal life. Living obedient to Jesus' commands as God has set them forth in his word, the Bible. You see, listen to this. Regardless of what the culture does, Godliness remains the Christian's aim. No matter what the culture does. I love the scripture that Elder Scott read this morning when he said that when when the first phrase, or the last phrase, excuse me, of the first verse said this Death has no dominion over him. Do you know what that means? Jesus has figured death out because he owns it. It has no dominion over him. Everything I said about our city in in Springfield, in southwest Missouri, simply results from one thing. Death still owns us. Death has dominion over people who are not in Christ Jesus. But those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are Christians by faith, have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ and now live because he lives in us. And we've been made new because new life has come into us. Guess what is true about us? Death has no dominion over us. That is the rallying cry in our city. That is the rallying cry into our culture. That is the rally cry of our lives. The death does not rule the ones in whom are found the one in which it has no dominion over. Jesus Christ. God equips the church to live godliness amidst a world of godlessness. God equips the church to live godliness amidst a world of godlessness. That's what I want you to walk away with today. There is nothing in your life that God has provided insufficiently for you to live godly in your life. And I want to push on you a little bit, not just today, but every week of this series. I want to press on us even more to say wherever we are and whatever is causing us to believe that we don't have everything we need, that we don't know everything we need to know, that we've not experienced everything we need to experience, that that everything we need power for is in some way insufficient or short of the demand of life. I simply want to say to us that God equips the church for godliness in a world of godlessness, fully and completely. And I want to take Paul's four aims that he prays for the church in defining his own gospel ministry. And I want to make them as aims for us as the church today. And so I want to share with you four aims of our church for every Christ follower 
in order to grow in this godliness that he has saved us for. The first aim I want to give to you this morning is what Paul says. That, that, that he's a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus for the faith of the saints, of God's elect. For the sake of the faith of God's elect, he says. The faith of God's elect, friends, is the first purpose of Paul's ministry and our first aim of gospel ministry and mission. All that we do to carry the gospel to all people is so that they can hear and believe in Jesus. You see, you'll mostly not disagree with me, I don't think, on this statement. But the Christian life begins by faith in Jesus Christ. Because the scripture is clear. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. And so when the word of Christ is heard, even in the reading of it, there's such power in the word of God, even in the simple reading of it. Hence why I pray every time the public word is read here, God might might you bless the reading and the hearing and the understanding and the obeying of it. Why? Because it's just the Word of God. And it's the Word of God when it is read and heard that faith comes. God delivers on His promise to us. You see, personal faith and salvation is inseparable from God's sovereignty. That's what Paul is saying to us here when he says that the very point of his servantship and apostleship is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. He is saying that our faith in Jesus and God's sovereignty and salvation cannot be separated. We are not saved because we made a decision, friends, but a decision to place our faith in Jesus is essential. Saving faith is not ours alone, nor does it originate from within us, but it comes from God through the hearing of his word. I'm going to let this sink in just a little bit. And now let me make just a quick application. That's why we're not riddled by trying to appease you, trying to entertain you, or impress you. We just want you to hear something, and that's God's word. I don't think it ought to be boring. I don't think it ought to be lackluster. But it doesn't need to be accessorized with all of our creativity that makes us look more like nuts than not. Friends, hear me. We are saved because God speaks. Because He speaks. And what He has said has been put in His Word for us. When God speaks, existence and eternity and the everyday transforms. When God speaks, there is no part of all of existence, of all of creation, and of all of our daily lives that remains unchanged. We either move closer to Him or we are pressed further away. When God speaks, everything changes gospel ministry therefore must be driven by God's word that we aim to hear him speak so faith can come to us from him and be placed in him from us you see salvation by faith brings us to God in complete dependence upon his work in Jesus Christ and salvation occurs when we trust in his plan his only begotten son the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Personal faith and salvation is inseparable from God's sovereignty. And the Christian life sources itself by faith in Jesus Christ. The Christian life is one of faith from first to last. There is no other strength that can withstand or sustain what God's commands demand. Listen, in all of your efforts, in all of your striving, I want you to hear this again. So I'm going to repeat that statement. The Christian life is one of faith from first to last. There is no other strength that can withstand or sustains what God's commands demand. And might I just say, this is the very point of all of God's commands. To show you that you're never going to satisfy them all. That breaking one of you, or breaking one of them, holds you responsibility for having broken all of them and leaves us destitute for a Savior, not just a strength. You see, you can't do the Christian life, but God can. That's His point. He wants, He perfectly wills, and He provides for the Christian life to be done by every person who places their faith in Jesus Christ, and that's the point. He, Habakkuk 2.4 says that the righteous shall live by faith. Hebrews 11.6, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, for we walk how? Do I need to make this like an official position so you know to answer that when I... For we walk by faith, not by sight. Not by sight. That's how we live, friends. Yes, there's absolutely things about the Christian life that we just don't get, we don't see, and we don't understand. Why? Because it's not up to us. It's up to God. And He's got it figured out. When your faith is grounded and sourced in you, it's not righteousness in you. It will never please God, and the walk it provides will never follow Jesus. A life of faith contrasts a life that is driven by self-dependence and self-reliance. You see, Paul explained that he preached the gospel, Jesus Christ crucified. And in 1 Corinthians 2, 5, here's how he did that. In demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It is that power that sources the Christian life. And faith in Jesus confronts and refutes every ounce of trust in self. You see, faith is not about the size or the amount, but about the object. Faith is not about the size or about the amount, but about the object that determines the impact that it will make. And faith that transforms is not generated from within, but it is transplanted divinely from God himself. That's why people sometimes get whipped up and make a decision in a moment that they feel in some sense had Jesus near it, but it didn't have Jesus at the center of it. And when they did all that they did, they wondered why Jesus didn't end up doing all that he said he would do. Now, I don't want to confuse you here, but I do want you to clarify. And I'm depending on the Spirit to bring that clarification to each one of you. But never should your faith depend or be sourced in you, but only given by God from on high. And when conviction comes, He brings the faith to turn in repentance and confess and follow Him.
We don't exist to accomplish what we can do. We exist to follow Jesus as he does in us and through us what he wills and what he desires to do. Yes, every day should begin this way. God, what do you want to do through me today? And then begin to listen what his word says and what he is speaking to you from within. And let that be the source from which the overflow of living comes. Faith is not a nice accessory. It's an essential means of everything. Friends, saving faith always begins with God, sources in Jesus, and it's never more or never less. One of the greatest practices that you can take up is to regularly take a spiritual inventory. Can I give you three questions just to ponder? These aren't going to come up on the screen. I'll try to go slow if you want to write them down. Three questions to help you take a spiritual inventory about your own faith. What am I believing that does not require Jesus to fulfill? What am I believing that does not require Jesus to fulfill? Now let me clarify that for you. You might ask God to do it for you, but you'd gladly take it getting to you any other way. You just want it done for you. The second question I would have you ponder is this. What am I doing that can be done without God? What am I doing that can be done without God? This includes both the action and the motivation and the way with which the action is accomplished. What am I doing that can be done without God? I would argue this, friends, just because you see you're doing it without God doesn't mean you're going to stop everything you've done without God. There have been days far too regularly that I've read my Bible without God. Far too many times I've prayed with really no consideration for God. Far too often I fear I've preached with more consideration for what I had to say than what God was wanting to say. What are you doing that can be done without God? The third question is this. What do I do without any consideration for God? Because friends, anything that you forget God in, you remove God from in your life. And then I would encourage you to take that list, start at the top, and be ready to repent. Be ready to recalibrate your thinking, to believe what God's word has said, and to reorient your action in faith to follow him and obey. And here's what, obey, uh, here's what obedience looks like. You stop anything that needs to stop by faith. You go, but I don't think I can quit that. Good. When you get to that point and you realize you can't, you're right at the threshold of confessing God can and he will if he's commanded it. And you start what God has commanded that you've yet to begin. And if you say, I don't think I can do that. Good. We're making some progress this morning, right? You're right at the threshold of confessing I can't, but God can. So walk on in. Walk on in. Let God work transformation 
in your life. The second aim this morning I want you to see is not only a faith in Jesus Christ, but a knowledge of the truth. This is what Paul says. He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. You see, the, in, the second aim is inseparable from the first. It's a knowledge of God's truth that grounds our Christian faith. It is the foundation for our Christian faith. Christian faith is never an ignorant adherence. Do you hear me? God's not asking you to be ignorant and just follow him blindly. Rather, it is an inflamed intellect that ignites emotion to joy and gladness and volition to obedience. David prayed this in Psalm 25, 4. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your path. David's not praying for a swollen intellect. He's praying for an increased knowledge that informs him for wise living. And that's what Paul labors for the church, that they might have a knowledge for godly living. You see, a knowledge of God's truth contrasts a knowledge that is determined by self-sufficiency. Because when the Bible speaks of knowing, it's not exclusively regarding just the intellect, but it never dismisses it. And when we make knowledge only of the mind, it's a division that gets created by our age of educational elitism to worship intellectual idolatry. That's exactly what it is, friends. That's exactly what it is. And that's not saying something about education that is good. It's saying we've taken it and made it God. And that's wrong. That's idolatry. The Bible never values knowledge for the sake of intellectual property. Biblical knowledge of truth always serves to inform wisdom for obedience and to inspire affections of joy and love. Let me give you two examples quickly from the scriptures that provide helpful understanding. First of all is in the Old Testament. It's Jeremiah chapter 24, 7. And he says this, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Here's what uh, Jeremiah is saying, that a heart that knows the Lord sources a love that follows and obeys in full joy. And that's the covenant promise that God gives to us. He will give you a new heart. And then Paul provides another powerful example that's actually a negative example that we need to hear. Romans 3.20 says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here, knowledge is what creates a relational chasm that moves us in one of two directions. Either we disregard God's word and dismiss what God calls sin and we walk away from God. Or in that moment, in the knowledge of sin that the law brings, in faith we humble ourselves. We confess our sin, which means to agree with God. We repent and turn to Jesus to put our faith in him, trust in him, and receive his forgiveness and his cleansing of our sin. You see, when we claim to know God's word and believe that we fulfill it in our own strength, we've missed the point completely. True knowledge of God's word reveals our sin and points us to Jesus. Let me just give a very brief application of this. Bible study, wherever it may take place, that has no effect on your obedience actually damages your Christian walk. 
Bible study that has no effect on your obedience to Jesus actually damages your Christian walk. There are many right ways to study the Bible, but every right way always affects one's conscience to inform their knowledge, encourage the volition of their will, and to inflame the affections of their emotions, all centered in Jesus. But too often, we study the Bible and we walk away unchanged. And you have to ask, what are we doing? What are we doing? Too often, we open a book that someone else has written about the Bible and we answer a list of questions and we satisfy the author, but we don't know anything more about the author. That's wrong. That's idolatry. That's sin. And that can happen sitting next to the same person who's growing deeper and deeper in their faith. And here's what Titus is going to show us. That this person and this person need to get together. And they need to learn from one another. And they need to help. Because there's another person out here and out here who need to be brought into that as well. That's what Titus is going to teach us. Christians can't thrive on knowledge passed from one person to the next. Listen to this. John 1.14 says what? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, the Word then, as Jesus sent the Spirit to empower and to counsel us. And this is what God has promised all along. Because when Ezekiel defines the covenant of God's promise uh, that, that, that God has given to us, he says this, I'll remove a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That is soft, moldable. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Let me ask you, what do you think that heart of flesh is that Ezekiel was prophesying about? It's the flesh that was become from the word. It's the word that became flesh that is put into the heart that is made from stone to flesh. And the spirit is put within. It is the word of God that inhabits us to walk with us everywhere we go. And so Peter says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because Christians live by the truth of God's word that is alive within them. That's our life. And so Paul prays. That the labors of his ministry would be done for the sake of the faith of God's elect and a knowledge of the truth. And then he says this, which accords with godliness. And this gives us our third aim, friends. Our third aim is simply obedience to God's command. You see, faith and knowledge of God's truth produce obedience to God's commands. And that's why Paul says, in accordance with. In other words, that faith and that knowledge are not just isolated incidences or or, or, uh, um, things to behold or to own, but rather one in the same. It's like a chemical reaction that produces something within us. Godliness is the devout practice of our beliefs by faith. Any faith and knowledge that fails to produce obedience to God's word and godliness in a person's life is false. It's a personal catastrophe. It's not a Christian faith. 
It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it comes automatically. It may take time and it may be a literal all-out war inside, but it will come because death has no dominion over the one that's living in you. None. None. We're so often tempted to believe that obedience is too hard. But friends, when we think this, listen to me, we listen to and we trust something other than God because God promises that obedience is not too hard. 1 John 5, 3 says, for this is the love of God that we obey his commands and his commandments are not burdensome to us. Not burdensome. You see, difficulty, friends, in obeying God's word doesn't show how hard it is to obey God's word, but how hard our hearts are toward God and his word. That's the kind of sentence where I just kind of have to sit back and go, I know that to be true. Because I look at it and go, God, I know you want to do that in my life. But I don't want you to. I don't want to stop what I might have to stop to go and do that. I don't want to entertain the implications that might come as a result of me stopping this or starting that. That's hardness of heart, friends. I don't care how softly you speak it or how nicely you communicate it to God. The softest, kindest no to God still a no. still a no. Growth and godliness contrast a life of growing self-righteousness. Godliness hears God say what to do, and it responds, yes, Lord. Self-righteousness says to God, tell me what you want me to do, and I'll calculate whether it fits into my priorities, into my desires, or to my schedule, and I'll get back to you on that. You see, self-righteousness has no real intent to obey unless it's self-serving. But knowledge plus faith equals wisdom to obey. And wisdom from God emerges when knowledge is right application for godliness and God's strength to act fuse into one person. God doesn't need to provide lengthy explanation because faith confirms that his wisdom will always serve his will and his purpose. That faith will produce his glory and my good. And that faith confirms that his wisdom will always be right. Always. The path from faith to knowledge to obedience I think is best articulated in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. There's faith. And lean not on your own understanding. There's a knowledge of the truth. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That's praise. That's thanksgiving and dependence. And he shall direct your path. That's a promise of strength to obey. Promise of strength to obey. Is faith and knowledge of God's truth growing godliness in your life through obedience? The last aim I'll leave us with is simply this, a hope in eternal life. In hope of eternal life. I love how Paul doesn't try to define or describe hope. I mean, who needs hope described, right? We we all know we want it and we need it. We desperately long for it when it is a void from our life. And there's no sadder situation than the person who is without 
hope. And yet, how many people walk by us every day without hope? Without hope. No one should be deprived of hope. So Paul simply states the certainty, the eternity, and the surety of our hope in God. The hope God gives, friends, is as sure as the never-lying Word of God speaks every time His Word is preached. He said God's promised it and God never lies. Amen. And He will bring the hope that He has promised. Hope in eternal life, it contrasts a life that is consumed with and is driven by worldly indulgence and worldly pleasure because we know this, that heaven is our eternal home, not here. That God's kingdom is our first citizenship, not this world. That Jesus is our now reigning and ruling Lord, and He is the one who never lies. There's never a promise that Jesus won't fulfill completely and more incredibly, bountifully, beautifully, and gloriously than He promises. I bet you won't find that over the next 18 months. Jesus never lies. Try and catch Him in one. They've always tried to catch Him in one and found their tongue tied up and choking on it. He promised before the ages began and he's about bringing it to fruition. And he's manifesting at the proper time, Paul says, in his word and through the preaching of his word. Jesus is our hope. He's the eternal logos incarnated among us and manifested to us each time God's word is faithfully preached. And I'll close this way as the worship team returns. What is then, what is our hope as the church and our hope as Christians in an age of godlessness? Listen to this quote. Christianity's greatest hope is not to become so desirable in the culture that we win people over but to become so compelling as an alternative to prevailing culture that we cannot be denied. That's where we're heading, friends, because that's where we are. And where we are is with Jesus. Where are you? Can I lead us in a prayer? Friends, I want you to walk away today knowing this, that God equips the church to live godliness amidst a world of godlessness. Where are you, Christian, today? Found yourself struggling and wrangling with sin and confused maybe and maybe even in some sense hopeless about a situation, about a circumstance, or maybe about life. And I'm not here today to cause you to question your Christianity, but I would caution you not to dismiss it and encourage you to ask, how must I turn from what is consuming me to be consumed with Christ? How do you need to do that today, friends? He stands ready to receive you if you'll turn to Him. Father, help us in this time as we respond to you Be clear in the words to our hearts that your spirit gives in the direction that you have for us. And Lord, remove any barrier to hearing from you. Remove any barrier to saying yes to you and obeying you. Help us 
in this time to hope, to believe, to trust in you, Jesus. To be the people that you have saved us, called us, and sent us to be. For the glory of your great name in whose name we